You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, uh, to Toronto Centre's webinar that we're organizing in partnership with our uh, partner Convergence on blended finance for climate adaptation, implications for supervisors. I am Bob Akabasade, President and CEO of Toronto Centre. Uh, happy to report that we have almost uh, 600 registrants from 75 countries and a really diverse group of countries. Uh, for example, Algeria, Angola, Aruba, Austria, representing letter A, and Zambia and Zimbabwe, Z, I feel like the Sesame Street, and many countries representing other letters of the alphabet in between. Since Toronto Center's establishment 25 years ago, we have trained more than 23,000 central bankers and other financial supervisors from 190 countries and territories to become change agents for building more stable and inclusive financial systems. Our mission is sponsored by Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish CETA, the IMF, and other very valuable international partners. Today, we face multiple global headwinds, economic uncertainties, geopolitical upheavals, two major wars, and increasing climate risks. And climate risks translate into financial risks. As global leaders prepare, for COP28, recent projections and scenario planning clearly point to an urgent need to significantly leverage public finance for private finance to support climate change mitigation and adaptation in emerging and developing countries. This is where blended finance comes in. We are delighted to be joining forces with Convergence today to hear about blended finance transactions and financial investments into agriculture, a critical component of climate adaptation, and food security. Just a quick shout out to our friends and partners Convergence. I have known about them even before the word Convergence was created as the concept for blended finance and Canada support was um, being um, um, brewed. And uh, we've become very good friends with them. And John Larry is a great partner of us. And we look forward to working with them more closely going forward. To help us better understand blended finance transactions and explore supervisory roles in the enabling environment, we have assembled a great panel to share their insights. You have already received their bios, so I won't read them. They are Dr. Namdi Igbokwake, um, Director of Knowledge and Thought Leadership of Convergence Blended Finance, based in Toronto, although I understand he's in New York. Laura Santa, Sustainable Finance Group Leader of the Financial Superintendency of Colombia, an organization that we have had more than 10 years of intense relationship with. Andrew Ahiaku, Director and Head of Financial Sector for Aseli Africa, a market facilitator that works in African countries to unlock agricultural finance for SMEs. Alan Elizondo, Director General of FIRA Bank in Mexico. FIRA is a unique bank structured to extend de-risk finance to the agricultural sector in Mexico through blended finance. Welcome to you all to this panel. The panel will be moderated by my colleague, Demet Chanakcha, Toronto Center Senior Program Director. Demet, I think at this point, I'm gonna hand it to you. Take it away, thank you. Thank you very much, Babek, uh, for setting the stage for us. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Demet Canakçı, Senior Program Director at Toronto Centre. Welcome to our discussion on blended finance for climate adaptation and supervisor implications. Let me start by thanking Co uh, Convergence for collaborating with Toronto Centre on this webinar. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Welcome to all of you joining us online. I also would like to welcome our all-star panel here. 
Uh, as Vabek highlighted in his speech, uh, recently we have been hearing even more from the NGFS and the IMF, as well as other international organizations, that collective action by private and public capital is needed bridge, to bridge the capital uh, climate finance gap. Looking forward to our uh, panel's view on this. We will have two rounds. I will pose two questions alternating between each speaker, and then I will take questions from the audience. On the first round, we will focus on what blended finance is and how it works, how it could be uh, used for closing the climate finance gap and the supervisory implications. On the second round, we will hear from our panelists uh, about their lessons learned and future prospects. Please use the Q&A tab to submit your questions during the panel session. Let's begin. Okay, uh, so Namdi, let me start uh, with you. Uh, Converge Convergence is a global network for blended finance and serves as a focal resource for blended finance transactions globally. Can you briefly tell us how does blended finance help, uh, help to attract investments into climate-related projects? More importantly, why does this matter uh, to emerging markets and developing economies? Perhaps you can also give us some uh, examples on specific instruments or mechanisms commonly used in blended finance for climate projects. Thank you. Sure, thank you, Demet. Thank you, Babak. And a uh, special thank you to the Toronto Center as well. We're very happy to uh, co-host this event. Um, so good morning and afternoon to all. I'm Dr. Namdi Bokwe, Director of Knowledge and Thought Leadership at Convergence. Uh, very quickly, a word about Convergence. Uh, we do three things primarily. Number one, provide data and intelligence to build the evidence base for blended finance. Uh, secondly, we offer a membership network with a live deal platform to facilitate deal flow. And finally, we have a design funding arm for market acceleration. So fundamentally, at Convergence, we're focused on the reality of de-risking to create assets that meet the fiduciary requirements of the private sector to enable them to invest. So when we at Convergence talk about blended finance, we're referring to any kind of use of catalytic capital, and this can be from philanthropic institution or development agency, to increase private sector investment in sustainable development and climate in developing economies. So a blended finance transaction should have three signature markings. Number one, it should have a positive financial return in line with the market. Number two, it should contribute towards SDGs in a developing country through impact. And number three, it should have leverage meaning the public and philanthropic parties leverage catalytic capital to make a deal happen that would not otherwise attract private capital. So conceptually, the role of blended finance has always been to solve large-scale global problems. Uh, perhaps the biggest one facing us all is climate. The annual SDG and climate investment needs in lower-income and middle-income countries are estimated at nearly $5 trillion. So we have now around a $3.5 trillion gap. That's the not-so-great news. The good news is that there is much, there's now much more than ever a huge appetite from the private sector to invest alongside the public sector on net zero and green initiatives. So whether it's reliable clean energy, reforestation projects, or water infrastructure, when these seemingly disparate forms of capital come together, when it's done right, when it's win-win, when charitable concessional money is combined with commercial money, that's called blended finance. So in principle, through de-risking, blended finance is bending the economics disproportionately towards a party that needs to make a commercial return, while also allowing the other party to achieve impact. So we're bending that arc, right, to bring in the private sector into areas that are deemed too risky. And without this modulation of risk, there's minimal participation that should be expected from the private sector. So in theory, right, we always hear about the abundance of capital, this quantum of capital that sits within the private sector that's ready to be mobilized for climate for climate uh, transitions and projects. But from the private sector perspective, there really is no natural investment thesis to enter developing economies and emerging markets. Why is that? Well, the risk return profile just doesn't add up, right? The perception of country risk, political risk is often far greater than is actually the case, but real or perceived, there is just an inherent aversion to these markets. We also think about the macroeconomic climate that we're in currently, high inflation rates, high interest rates, debt burdens, all of these make it even more challenging for the investment climate in many emerging markets. And it reveals a harsh truth. Without enhanced risk sharing, 
and greater public sector willingness to shoulder potential losses, substantial private capital flows into these emerging regions will not be realized. So we really have to catalyze, or we have to apply catalytic capital uh, and the structuring mechanisms of blended finance in a way to mobilize the private sector. So if we think about why blended finance for climate and how, the why, as I've just explained, that private investment is a necessary condition at this point to meet our funding targets. Emerging markets and developing economies have substantial climate vulnerabilities, yet often struggle to really attract sufficient commercial climate financing due to the risk profiles. And again, the macroeconomic shocks currently has really redirected cross-border capital um, and increased the risk profile of these developing countries that already found it difficult to attract private investors. 88% of emerging markets are non-investment grade, which really precludes a lot of investment activity, at least on the debt side. And 85% of blended finance transactions occurred in countries with non-investment grade sovereign risk ratings. This is important because most private institutional investors have investment policies directly tied to favoring investment grade jurisdictions. So there's a mismatch here that prevents capital inflows into climate initiatives. So that's where blended finance would come in in part. And if we think about adaptation specifically, it becomes even more necessary as it's greater uh, investor risk perceptions are associated with adaptation and has a less proven business case. Uh, and then quickly, we'll talk about the how for blended finance through you know, the archetypes and the vehicles. Uh, four primary archetypes that are used in climate blended finance. Number one, concessional capital. This is used 77% of the time. Um, this is a layer of protection in the capital stack where a donor or public funds occupies a first loss position to reduce the cost of capital for private investors. Second, you have guarantees like used as credit enhancement mechanisms to cover risks like political risk or other currency volatilities. Uh, you have technical assistance, which supplements capacity and cover transaction costs. This is actually seen in 40% of adaptation deals. It features technical assistance. And finally, we have design funding grants for market acceleration. Uh, and then we think about the vehicles and how these uh, mechanisms are deployed. Project transactions really lead in terms of climate blended finance. 40% of climate blended finance deals uh, utilize projects. You also have funds, companies, facilities. Uh, but if we're really thinking about the scale and really thinking about uh, meeting these targets, the portfolio level projects and aggregation of portfolio of funds is really where we're, we're spending most of our, our time in terms of you know getting these pool of projects together to uh, apply blended finance solutions. So that's a broad framework for the understanding of what blended finance is, uh, why it's important for climate investment in emerging markets and developing economies, and how it's applied. Thank you very much, Namdi. You put in a, an excellent context, especially uh, in this global environment. Uh, we have so many challenges. It will be really hard for emerging market economies to attract investments private sector in particular to reach the climate targets. So thank you for uh, putting in a very good context for us. Uh, let me uh, move to Ellen. Um, Ellen, welcome. And can you briefly introduce FIRA to our audience and provide an overview of FIRA's blended finance business model and how it operates to support sustainable rural development? Hello, everybody. Thank you. Um, Demet for the introduction. And uh, well, uh, I introduce FIRA. FIRA is uh, an institution that is uh, turning 70 year old next year. Uh, we are a second tier development bank in the form of a trust, and we are managed by the Central Bank of Mexico. Uh, but the capital of FIRA is provided by the Ministry of Finance. Uh, FIRA provides three instruments, which is the technological support for smallholders. Uh, we also provide the funding uh, to a network of intermediaries and guarantees. Uh, we are focused on agricultural and rural activities with three main objectives. Uh, the first one is uh, to enhance financial inclusion in our country, to boost uh, productivity, and also uh, to, to remain sustainable not only socially, but uh, with the uh, with the weather. So the activities are, are focused on uh, climate sustainable uh, technologies. Uh, we also participate in 60% uh, of all the loans provided to the agricultural sector in Mexico. 
one of our instruments is involved in 60% of the cases. Um, we started with uh, soft funding from the central bank in 1954. And when the central bank became autonomous in 1994, we started funding our operations in the financial markets with our own capital and in alliance with international financial organizations like, uh, like foreign banks, uh, such as the, the IDB, the World Bank, or uh, the Agence Française in, in France. Uh, well, uh, the way we do uh, blended finance, basically by using uh, concessional capital, the same as the convergence center, we also uh, provide guarantees. Guarantees are helpful not only for our intermediaries to go further into uh, more risk projects, but we also provide guarantees for them to fund in, in the markets. So if, if with a guarantee of FIRA, they can turn their debt in AAA and get funding from the markets. Uh, we also structure transactions such as securitizations of loans. So these loans are structured in, in, in small trusts and debt is issuing to the markets and we guarantee these uh, loans. And uh, finally, uh, we also uh, provide the, uh, well, the funding, direct funding to financial intermediaries, uh, which is very needed uh, with the small uh, non-bank financial intermediaries in our country, which are the ones that are more specialized in providing funding to small holders. Thank you, Demi. Thank you very much for this. Uh... Looks great. Mexico is one of the uh, countries also a lot of work uh, in this climate related area. And um, we have been uh, working with Bank of Mexico as well. And they also have this, you know, um, climate uh, finance and biodiversity loss related a lot of work going on. And good to hear from you on this one as well. Uh, thank you. We will come to you in the second round for more. And um, Andrew, let me um, pose the question to you. Um, so SLA Africa acts as a market facilitator, bridging the finance gap and unlocking the growth and impact potential of agricultural SMEs in Africa. Can you tell us briefly about your work and what has been achieved so far? And my colleagues who have spoken so far, Aseli is a market incentive, or if you like, a blended finance facility that supports partner financial institutions to bridge the gap between capital and capital supply and demand. So we provide or support financial institutions to increase lending to high impact agri SMEs in Africa. Currently, we cover Kenya. Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda, and now Zambia. And Aseli arose because at a point, the network of um, small-scale agricultural finances or call CSAF realized that they were not making money, generally because of the risks that they were facing lending to agri-SMEs. So thank you to USAID, they provide some initial capital for the research, which research revealed that for the first time, an institution was able to put the number to risk. And the research revealed that lending to agri-SMEs was twice riskier than any other segment in the chosen market that we did the research, that was East Africa. And this risk is determined by the level of MPL. So if you took, for example, agriculture, if the MPL was four, then the MPL for other sectors was like two. And that is how we determined that lending to agri was quite riskier. The research also revealed that the returns to agri was four to 5% lower than expected, which sort of beat, beat, builds or defeats the financial logic. Usually the higher the risk, the higher the return. Unfortunately, in this case, although the risk was high, the returns were lower. As a result of this, we designed a selling to respond to these challenges. So 
in order to reduce or the risk they set and we provide with the support of convergence at the design stage, we provided a first loss cover, which Nandi spoke about. Then to support partner financial institutions improve their profitability as a result of reaching out to the SMEs in the rural areas. We also introduced the origination incentive, which supported to defray the cost of originating loans to agri-SMEs. So our selling is made up of a financial incentive, a technical assistance, all these underpinned by data and lending. And that is how Aseli has operated thus far. Some of the early successes so far include working with 38 plus lenders, which cover banks, non-bank financial institutions, and social lenders. In addition to that, we have assets last week mobilized about $144 million. And our leverage ratio currently is at 10x, which we think is doing well. Aside that, 60% of the lenders or the SMEs that borrow through our lenders are new borrowers. And 27% of the SMEs that come back for repeat or returning loans have seen an increase in their revenue. So we think there are early signs of growth. Among our partner financial institutions, we are beginning to see a drop in interest rates. Some of the lenders have diversified into other segments, whereas others have also reduce their collateral requirements. And so as Nandi said, blended finance can be used as, an, as a vehicle to catalyze or bring about catalytic change within an environment. And we think this is good for a social sector like agriculture. And that is how far Aseli has progressed. Thank you. Thank you very much for letting us about the, you know, Aseli uh, Africa's important work on SMEs in Africa. And now I would like to move to uh, Laura. Uh, Laura, welcome. You bring supervisory perspective to the panel. Uh, so tell us why should supervisors care about blended finance and what potential risks do blended finance transactions pose to the financial system? Thank you. Thank you, Demet, and good morning and good afternoon to, to everyone. Thanks to Convergence and Toronto Center for this invitation. I would like to start with something that already Dr. Namdi pointed out, and is the environmental, the financing environmental, because the pandemic has exacerbated pre-existing socioeconomic issues in Latin America and the Caribbean and in other emergency and emergent, sorry, and developing countries. And currency volatility has often avoided consistent investment in climate initiatives in these kinds of countries, which is actually accentuated by the high interest environments we're in, contributing to an even greater currency risks. And high inflation is another issue and the ongoing global monetary policy tightening have exacerbated structural difficulties for climate financing. And the deterioration in the global economic outlook this year is also exacerbating already elevated debt distress in many countries, constraining their ability to implement climate policy uh, reforms. Given this current limited fiscal policy space and the high debt levels in many emerging and developing countries after the pandemic, private capital is becoming vital to finance climate adaptation and mitigation efforts. And with this context, blended financery comes into the picture because it has an important role in demonstrating investability in emerging and developing economies and because it can enhance the risk reform profile of climate adaptation and mitigation project. Uh, so blended finance becomes a tool that solves for market failures, failures as it can price externalities such as biodiversity and resilience. Considering all these and the developmental mandate that many supervisors have, it is important for us to engage with blended finance because it can help to address some gaps in their economies, but it's also important for us to raise awareness of its risk uh, because it is expected that 
uh, financial entities may become more involved in this kind of structures. Uh, but they come with some risks that maybe understand. Blended finance is often time and effort intensive, and it requires more complex treatment by investors within their governance and investment processes. So it is important to understand the risk inherent in the projects to be financed and how effectively this risk will be mitigated by the various enhancements provided by other parties. Because in the learning process and while these learning process is taking place, higher risk and potentially weaker risk manage management are going to be, to be seen the supervised entities. This is why credit risk and operational risk may be exacerbated considering this complexity I just talked about and it may lead to ineffective mitigation. So also considering the short fiscal space, regulator and investor should also address potential risk associated with an increase in external financing, considering this um, uh, interest in this kind of investment that is going to, to come from abroad. And considering that most of the financing or even this concessional financing will come from abroad, as I just, uh, as I just say. So currency risks are also one of the most relevant risks to be cautious of, as well as political or regulatory uncertainties that may appear in these kind of countries. But commercial risk is also to be considered because the projects to be financed may not be profitable or commercial, commercially viable. And as just uh, Dr. Nambi says, it has to have a return for all parties because it's not going to change the mandate of the parties or the actors that are going to be involved. So currency risk may be exacerbated by this commercial risk as well. And finally, investment mandates, low risk ratings, and liquidity are all additional barriers to investment in emerging and developing countries. So many investors do not have the mandate to invest in transactions that are below investment rate and are too risky. This is why supervisor has also a role in order to clarify the spaces where blended finance can, can be, can be developed. And it is important to know that risks are also harder in, uh, to measure and more accurate in developing countries. So this is something that has to be addressed by, by supervisors. Thank you very much, Laura, for identifying all those inherent risks uh, in, the, in the, any blended finance-related uh, transactions. Uh, I, I, before moving to second round, I would like to take this question because it's quite relevant what you just said. Uh, thank you, Lynn, for asking the question. Uh, there is, uh, I would like to ask to you, Laura, and then maybe Namdi can also chime in. Um, it's up to the other uh, panelists. There is increasing concern about greenwashing in the financial community with a rise in regulatory responses and litig litigation. Is blended finance equally at risk from greenwashing or does it have any additional protection mechanisms? We can't hear you. Thank you. Thank you. And as in other kind of financing structures, it is important to mitigate greenwashing risk. So for for blended finance, it's also recommended for supervisors to enhance the standardization of the information provided. This is going to be also helpful in order to adequately prices the risk and in order also to understand that this kind of financing can be investable in emerging and developing countries with this kind of structures that are going to uh, share uh, the risks that are involved. So yeah, information is really important to bring transparency to all the actors in order to where the impact is going and in order to make really effective, uh, to make effective these flows and not going maybe for something that is not going to effectively impact the, the SDG goals that we have. Thank you, Laura. Um, Namdi, would you like to add anything to this? Uh... Yeah, sure. I'll just add, um, you know, we have to remember that blended finance is a structuring tool and it's not an approach on its own merit, right? So it, it's a, it's a, it's very important when we think about, you know, distorting markets and, and things like greenwashing. Um, it's very important to remember that blended finance should not be applied wholesale in terms of you know, let's look at problems and apply blended finance. It should be, you start with the what you're trying to solve for, whether it's climate, whether it's adaptation, whether it's mitigation, whether it's something specific. And then you see if blended finance is an apt tool that will help crowd in the private sector into transactions that otherwise would not be financeable 
um, without that additionality. So it's always important to remember not to think of blended finance as just this overbearing, this broad umbrella or the silver bullet that just applies to everything. It should be used tactfully and tactically uh, and applied where necessary. Thank you very much, Namdi. Um, now, as you can see, this is going to be a really fascinating panel as we go forward. Those are excellent and interesting questions and answers and couldn't have been more diverse. Let me move to the second round. Um, so uh, Namdi, I'll start with you again, the same structure. <laughs> From your vantage point, what are some of the key barriers to fi blended finance for climate solutions? And what would you recommend going forward? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, there, there's several key barriers that hinder blended finance for climate solutions, particularly with adaptation. I'll quickly go through a few uh, and give some recommendations at a, at a high level. Uh, number one is the insufficient uh, pool of concessional capital. You know, Convergence estimates that 500 billion in concessional capital will be required through 2035 for clean energy alone. But concessional capital flows, whether it's from donors or philanthrop uh, philanthropic capital, have really stagnated since 2017. So this is constrained de-risking capacities uh, to crowd in the private sector. Uh, recommendation would be for donors and foundations and MDBs uh, and those that are deploying concessional capital to increase the flexibility, uh, to be more patient with the capital, and, and really MDBs and DFIs who typically are the largest concessional providers need to exit senior positions and occupy more subordinate or mezzanine positions in the capital stack to really increase the mobilization effects for the private sector. Um, additionally, we have to prioritize facilities over projects. You know, Many institutional investors feel that public grants and grant equivalent financing have been too targeted on funding for individual projects rather than being used to mitigate risks more broadly to crowd in the private sector. Uh, so keeping those two things in mind with the use of concessional capital would be very vital. Uh, another impediment is, you know, we've been talking about the macroeconomic landscape. Um, it, has, it has heightened risk perceptions in emerging markets. It's triggering capital flight back to stable jurisdictions. So you know, we have blended structures for local currency financing and currency hedging to reduce FX volatility. We have credit guarantees and insurance to protect against you know, interest rates or political risk, but these concessional instruments do have limitations. So we really have to wider the enabling environment and support sustained private sector participation and think about some of these non-financial risks where governments should you know, foster policies to create more certainty, streamline regulations where possible, um, and really provide incentives that denote climate financing commitments to build local capacity. So it's not only on the financial side. There are non-financial risks that should be attended to and part of the mix when we're thinking about de-risking. Another impediment is this commercial perception, right? Investors still think that climate investments are excessively risky in these regions, especially when you think about adaptation with unproven revenue models, limited track records, long durations. So Again, I'll go back to the point I made earlier. Institutional investor risk appetites are directly tied to credit ratings. So blended structures should maximize credit enhancements like using guarantees to achieve investment grade ratings where suitable. Uh, and where not suitable, we really should leverage and prioritize the use of grant funding for TA to build local capacity or for design funding to really demonstrate viability and proof of concept in maybe more nascent areas and sectors. Another impediment is scale. So you know, it's related, all, all of these are really related, but the median size of a climate blended finance transaction is about 30 million. Uh, this is relatively small for the institutional investor, right? They look at, they really need more larger ticket sizes to justify some of the costs and the diligencing that goes through with you know trying to uh, participate in some of these transactions. So again, aggregating projects into funds where possible would be a great recommendation to, to sort of meet that challenge. Um, and then the last one I would say is the taxonomy around adaptation. You know, there's a lack of a clear taxonomy and metrics to evaluate adaptation finance. Uh, and this really poses valuation challenges. So a few things can be done here. Uh, first, standardized disclosure methodologies to reduce some of this ambiguity. You know, really allow for climate aligned investments from asset owners, from asset managers to be more harmonized. Our data at Convergence shows that one third of total climate financing is invested in hybrid solutions, right? The mix between mitigation and adaptation. So if the broader climate finance community begins to effectively outline a taxonomy for adaptation, 
concessional players could pay for benefits that may not be immediately monetizable. Also expanding this taxonomy can direct investors to solutions that are currently beyond their radar. So if a company is helping to manage drought disease or supply chain disruptions um, and other climate, uh, climate impacts may not often be referred to as recognized as climate related, but expanding a taxonomy in this way uh, addresses some of the risks and gaps associated with structuring and also increases the pool of climate solutions that are bankable. Um, and then lastly, I'll just say that MDBs could also add to this disclosure process to generate more data uh, through more transparency to support measuring benefits to help scale climate blended finance. So those are just a few areas and impediments for um, scaling and increasing climate blended finance solutions and a few recommendations to go along with them. Well, that's great. Thank you very much, Namdi. You put uh, the all. Thanks for identifying all those key important barriers and um, your views on what could be done to address those. Uh, that was very helpful. And uh, let's move to uh, to the next um, speaker. Um, uh, Ellen, uh, can you tell us about the key lessons, good or good practices FIRA has learned from its experience with blended finance in the context of agriculture and rural development? Thank you, Demet. Uh, let me start with one key lesson we have learned with time. Uh, it is important for blended finance, and particularly if you are to finance with an, uh, an, a good environmental conscience, um, to be in the form of a second tier institution. If we were not, if we were just a first tier institution, it would be uh, difficult for us to compete with other institutions to finance because uh, it is typically um, the, you have one methodology for credit risk, but then you have an additional methodology for an environmental risk. So if you are the one that introduced this methodology in a first year fashion, then this becomes a, a negative competitive uh, tool in the sense that you take more time uh, to originate loans. However, if uh, you are a second tier institution and you represent 60% of the funding of the sector, then it is uh, easier and more, more <clears throat> it, it becomes more relevant we have introduced uh, methodologies uh, to finance agriculture, which are uh, good for uh, the environment, mitigate risks, and we apply them to a network of 130 intermediaries. So uh, this has become a standard, and this standard is used by these 130 institutions on the proportion of we, from what we represent from their funding. So this is uh, an important key lesson that uh, we have learned uh, through time. Uh, the second one is uh, very similar to what we have heard. It is important for the prices of uh, our products to be a market prices. We cannot subsidize. If we are to subsidize, we have to make things explicit. So not introducing uh, price distortions is something that has uh, provided sustainability to our model, financial sustainability and uh, lets things uh, place exactly where they should be. Uh, well, one important lesson also is uh, to, notwithstanding not we are a second tier institution, it is very important for us to have a presence on all over the country, to structure the projects, to help uh, smallholders to, to structure good projects, to, to sell their products in the market, and we also transfer technology, for example, good technologies for the environment or certifications. Our methodology, our institution provides to, to smallholders. And this makes a difference for them to produce in an environmentally friendly uh, methodology. And then they can sell their products with an advantage uh, to, the, to the export uh, companies that work in our, in our country. Uh, so, uh, and one, finally, the, another lesson that we have learned is uh, to work not only with banks. Um, banks have a good presence in, in the agricultural sector, but we have to, to, to be knowledgeable of the, of the reality of our country. Uh, the rural areas are served more by, by other type of intermediaries, non-bank financial intermediaries that are uh, smaller and more specialized. It is very important for us to work with them 
uh, not only because they will reach uh, uh, further into financing smallholders, but also because you have more impact in the in the way they do these things. Um, this will be the, the four uh, most important lessons we have learned uh, through time. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Ellen, for sharing uh, lessons learned. Uh, it's very useful to others uh, to benefit from it. And you, you also mentioned how you use this information in your work. Uh, thanks for uh, that. And Andrew, uh, uh, you have recently issued a learning report on the effect of central bank policies on lending to agricultural SMEs in Af East Africa. How do central bank policies impact the accessibility of financing for agricultural SMEs in the region? Can you share your experiences with us? Thank you. Thank you, Demet. Uh, of all the challenges that we normally mention that bedevil lending to agri-SMEs or SMEs in general in Africa or emerging markets, uh, we, we usually don't look at the policy angle nor do we uh, check the regulatory environment to see whether they support or do not support lending to agri -SMEs. And so in 2021, Aseli kept hearing from our partner financial institutions that they would have done more, but they think there are some challenges with the big brother who looks after them. So we went into markets, did some surveys, did some research and came out with five major findings that we thought uh, impact lending to uh, agri-SMEs in Africa. These include the IFRS 9, which replaced IES 38, the capital adequacy ratio regimes of central banks in East Africa, loan classification and provisioning, SME collateral requirements, and the treatment of guarantees. Of these five findings, Two of them are influenced by the Basel III Commission, or they come from the international, the Bank for International Settlements. And so, although they are challenging to East Africa, we think that those might require a lot more discussions, advocacy to bring about change. For example, IFRS 9 has a formula called the expected credit loss. All of a sudden, losses which used to be accounted for when they work, when they occur, now have to be forecasted. So now lenders are called upon to become forecasters to be able to focus into the future to determine whether a sector will make a loss, uh, an SME will make a loss or not. And mostly this is driven by the risk of the sector, the probability of default, and the loss that will occasion if uh, the great uh, that will ha happen if the loss occurred. The overall effect of this is that if a sector is risky, a lender will not want to touch it because the more you touch it, the more money you have to set aside to meet the expectations of uh, uh, IFRS 9. Our view is IFRS 9 is great, but as we found out, it has had unintended consequences. For example, it is gradually pushing lenders away from impactful sectors, but which carries risk. We have blended finance, we have other tools that can de-risk the sector. And so we think expected credit loss as designed is not helping. We think sectors that have de development impact should be considered rather than looking at the risk alone. On the capital adequacy ratio, although Basel III sets some criteria, our colleagues in East Africa chose the high end. So whereas globally, banks are supposed to set aside 6 to 8% of their um, capital as capital adequacy ratio, in some of our markets, they set aside up to 15%. Now, when that happens, what it means is that it is taking away money that would otherwise have gone into lending and being set aside as capital adequacy ratio. And we think this uh, needs to be looked at. But as I mentioned earlier, the IFRS capital adequacy ratio takes a regional or a global approach. So we will need more time to make a difference. However, the last three, loan classification and provisioning, 
SME collateral requirement and the treatment of guarantees, we think are within the reach of the various local central banks and they can make changes in them. And I want to take just two of these. Let's look at local education and provision. The challenge with that is, according to the World Bank and the African Development Bank, agriculture is a, spe is a special area and therefore requires special regulatory and provisioning requirements. Our view is we shouldn't treat agriculture like any other sector, run the program as though it was commerce. No, if you go to India, if you go to Pakistan, they have a set of rules dedicated towards agriculture. We think that local, uh, local central banks in the various countries, especially emerging markets, including Africa, can take a cue for that. Let's use one practical example. One guideline from the IFRS world is when you do a loan, and the loan is non-performing and it moves from one bucket to the other. That loan must meet repayment four times before you can move it back to the previous bucket. So let's look at agriculture. Assuming you supported a maize farm or a farm that was an annual crop, even if the business is doing well, you have to wait for four cycles, four years, and be providing a, a, a setting aside capital for, for the four years before you can bring it back. We think this is inimical to lending to agri-SMEs. Let me quickly look at the way through the central bank's own doing, lenders in our part of the world do not use guarantees as, in, as intended. Guarantees were designed as credit enhancement tools. They were supposed to support lenders to move into high-risk areas, move into segments that are uncharted, and when they become efficient, then the guarantees can be removed and then they will continue to lend to the center. However, because the central bank discounts guarantees and does not treat them as risk mitigating instruments, the bank also tends to treat guarantees as collateral replacements. In fact, in my days in banking, we will only think of guarantees for a client when the client doesn't got sufficient collateral. So instead of guarantees supporting us to take on more risk, it is not. And we think that the central bank, especially for the A-rated sponsors of guarantees, they must give them some zero rating or treat them just like near cash facilities so as to support um, lenders in East Africa or Africa for that matter to use guarantee in the right sense that uh, there is. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andrew, for sharing your uh, challenges and how it uh, has how this you know central bank policies impact the accessibility of uh, financing uh, SMEs, in particular in your region. And uh, you always have a, a very important mission to accomplish. And now, Laura, you have the last say. In your opinion, what regulatory and supervisory frameworks or policies can be put in place? to ensure that blended finance initiatives align with financial stability and supervisory objectives. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, let, me, let me say that safety and soundness of the financial system is still the main objective of, of most of the supervisors. But depending on specific mandates and country circumstances, policymakers can help also to promote blended finance, for, for, for example, engage it with donors to understand and facilitate access uh, to existing instruments. Uh, but supervisors' expected role is to have the right climate policies in place, such as carbon pricing, and to strengthen the climate information architecture, which is going to be key in order to understand the investability of these options, but also to understand the risks. And this includes high quality, comparable, reliable climate data, appropriate pathways to adopt disclosure standards and establishment of classification system and transition taxonomies, just as Dr. Nandi mentioned. It is also important to have in place robust governance and transparency standards because of the complexity of these structures, the governance process and the investment process, is it has to be more robust. And policymakers has a role also in order to clarify where blended finance is needed as I mentioned earlier, in order to allocate adequately the, the flows in the goals that are needed that are uh, 
locally prioritized. And this is the right amount of concessional funding necessary to finance, finalize a project, thinking that this concessional financing is not going to be permanent. It must not going, it, it must not be permanent. It, it, it is going to help to mature this system, but it's not going to be permanent. And it is also recommended to promote greater standardization to help reduce the information asymmetries that may be between investors and project developers, leading to more efficient allocation of capital and, bet and a better risk assessment uh, for investors. Additionally, supervisor and policymakers should promote effective risk mitigation and support innovative blended finance solutions to encourage risk diversification, understanding the risk and understanding if these guarantees or these uh, mitigation aspects are going to be enough uh, for the risk that is that, that is raised. And the, this diversi diversification can attract different sources of private capital with different risk profiles and investment time horizon, which is going to mature more and deepen in the, the financial markets. And policymakers should also provide greater regulatory clarity for blended finance and address potential practical and regulatory barriers. Barriers are those uh, raised for my colleagues that may disincentivize by now private sector participation. And also it is important to promote information from intermediaries such as credit risk agencies and ESG providers in order to improve the understanding, understanding of the investability of emerging and developing countries in these kind of projects. And a robust information architecture is always important. I, I once again point out the taxonomies as a way to improve and to mitigate some of the risk in the allocation of, of capital. And just think about it, this um, the promoting of this blended finance structure should have in place a, a development objective which has to leverage or, or be based on the context and the prioritization of uh, or the priority, sorry, of the local context. It may have an additionality in order to, to move the capital towards the projects that are going not to move forward without this capital. And it has to support local priorities and enable development or commercial mandate without comprising uh, on their standards. Their mandates of the commercial and the development banks is not going to change. Uh, return is going to be an aspect of this uh, blended finance. And it is important to monitor the transparency and the results of this financing with KPIs, KPIs in order to assess effectiveness and efficiency uh, of the financing allocation, enhancing transparency and public accountability, which is going to improve uh, the market information, the risk assessment, and the efficient pricing, as I and as uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think those are, those are the most important frameworks that has to be put in place to improve this environment. Thank you, thank you very much, Laura. Uh, thank you. Uh, so we have a lot of questions. So I would like we have limited time left, and uh, so I would like to move to the questions. Um, so. Uh, Namdi, there's a specific question uh, named for you. <laughs> uh, so I'll just start with that one. Um, so our uh, participant says, you mentioned that the flow of concessional capital has stagnated since 2017. How could you re-incentivize the public who are conventionally motivated by capital gains to invest in these initiatives? Yeah, thank you. It's a really important question um, and, and one I'm happy to provide some context to. Uh, so first, we have to understand that it's not the role of private capital to solve development and climate challenges. It's the role of governments, the role of development finance institutions to ensure that conditions are suitable for the private sector and are optimal to generate you know, finance that's needed to address some of these issues. Uh, the private sector is not going to come into where the risks they don't understand are and the landscape that they don't get. So this is where all of that de-risking uh, and mitigating risk through blended finance comes in. To speak specifically about concessional capital and re-incentivizing. Uh, so Convergence actually wrote and published in, with USAID an action plan that identifies how a small amount of public and philanthropic capital can act as a catalyst to combine 
strategically with their investments to move the international system from 240 billion to 530 billion. I'll place that in the chat, a link to that report, because it goes through a five pillar action process, how that can occur. Uh, but more, maybe more relevant to the discussion here today is a point to philanthropic capital and the role that philanthropic capital can play. Uh, between 2017 and 2022, philanthropic organizations provided about 10% of all concessional capital to climate blended finance. So there is a large but untapped opportunity to expand our participation. So really, to show the muscular nature, nature of philanthropic capital, we have to better align with local mechanisms to forge strong collaborations. Uh, and, and what do I mean by that? So, for example, if we think about it through a regulatory lens or uh, a government lens, uh, philanthropic, philanthropic capital has PRIs, program-related investments, that serve as a bridge that combine the intent of charitable giving with the you know, mechanisms of below-market investment through de-risking. So what regulators can do in this sense is lead incentives to promote and facilitate more philanthropic activity. For example, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has recently encouraged single family offices to use Singapore as a base to conduct more philanthropic uh, activity. Uh, have They have an incentive-laden tax scheme to do just that. Uh, there's something similar going on in Brazil where philanthropic capital and impact investors are pushing for tax code amendments to better utilize such funds. So, you know, to broadly answer the question, the re-incentivizing the private sector is really through de-risking. That risk return balance has to make sense. Otherwise, there's no activity, there's no participation. On the public side, just more strategic use of catalytic capital. I've already talked about what MDBs and DFIs can do directly, uh, but I think philanthropic capital in this sense can really unlock and open up some of the mobilizing of the private sector if regulators can come into play and, and do certain things to allow uh, some of that capital to be better programmed and, and better applied. Thank you, Namdi. Uh, I would like to ask Mikhail's question to uh, Ellen. Maybe Andrew can also add to that. Uh, what strategies can be implemented to attract lenders and offer guarantees for agroforest projects? Thank you. Yeah. And thank you. Well, in FIDA, we have an agreement with the National Forestry Commission. So they are very interested in, in directing money to, to agroforestry. So, and well, that is one program. The second one is with the KFW, the German bank. So the way the, these uh, two programs work, I, I'm going to start with the KFW. Um, they have uh, brought to Mexico uh, consultants that will help us find uh, projects on agroforestry from, from small communities. So these um, uh, consultants will gather together with our personnel to find those projects. Then once you have identified some projects, uh, we will fund them as an institution using the German uh, funding. And then uh, in, in order to, to, to have financial intermediaries interested in the project, we have designed a guarantee product. This is a first loss guarantee where uh, an institution or financial institution can build a portfolio. So the 20% uh, first uh, loss uh, of that portfolio is taken from this uh, guarantee provided by the KFW uh, institution. So this has attracted two things. Uh, first, the identification of projects that are sustainable and uh, can be financed, but also the interest of a lot of financial intermediaries locally in Mexico because of this guarantee product that is, has been built together with uh, the German uh, institution. Maybe quickly to add to what uh, yes, Alan please. said, uh, beyond the guarantees which he spoke about, which are selling or first, we also have origination incentive that we offer to um, lenders that support SMEs into these high impact areas, including um, agroforestry. And we also identified agroforestry as one of the climate and environmental practices. And we have reduced the lower limit for loans that qualify for that area and offered more impact-driven incentives just to encourage lenders to do that. And finally, we are also adv offering advisory services to some of the lenders and their SMEs to better appreciate and understand uh, the sector so that they can go after more climate and environment related facilities. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Ellen and Andrew. Uh, that was great. So unfortunately, we will be closing the session. Uh, so let me thank this fantastic panel and thanks again for joining the conversation. You will receive a brief survey from Toronto Centre right after this. Your views are important and it will help us to identify, identify what to cover next on blended finance, climate adaptation and supervision. So please take time to do that when you receive it. And I, again, thank you all very much for joining us and thank you uh, for the panel. Mm -hmm.